Good day and thank you so much for joining us again. Today we are talking about fatherhood. We all know there are wins and there are challenges. Here to help us understand, therapist Jewel Woods. And Jewel, you have uh, extensive experience, experience, I should say, in therapy uh, and male behavioral health as well. How long have you been at it? Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I am the founder and clinical director of Male Behavioral Health. Uh, male Behavioral Health is an outpatient uh, mental health practice focused on the mental health uh, of men and boys. We have been around since 2016, but I've been doing mental health for at least the last decade. And prior to that, I've been working in and around men's issues for the last 20 years. That's what I wanted to get at. So you've been at it for two decades now. Are you seeing some of the same issues crop up or are you seeing new trends emerge? Sure. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of familiarity, uh, but the recent last uh, two years, certainly with, 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 within respect of the pandemic and more specifically within the context of the social injustice, uh, a lot of men, particularly African-American men of, and men of color in general, experience a lot more anxiety, a lot more depression, uh, and a lot more trauma. So for the first time uh, in African-American male life, uh, men are more open to coming to outpatient treatment and talking about their issues. So while the issues are in many ways have been the same, as one gentleman explained it to me before, he said, you know, these are questions that I've always had, but the distraction of life uh, was removed when the pandemic came. And so all these questions and issues I have have just gotten louder over time. So many, a lot of familiarity, but a little bit more acute as of the last year, year and a half. So isolation kind of forces one to uh, reckon with one's issues. Absolutely. As one as one gentleman said, and I believe you're from the Cleveland area, he said, you know, I could have problems, but then I could, you know, go to a Cavs game. I could go do all these things that would distract me, you know, from life's issues. But, you know, being sequestered in the house and having to deal with one's wife, having to deal with one's children, having to deal with one's legacy, all those sort of questions became louder and more prominent when you don't have those distractions to, to not have your mind fixate on them. I don't know, Doc, if uh, the calves are a healthy distraction <laughs> right about now. <laughs> but I get what you're saying. <laughs> I am uh, originally from Northeast Oklahoma, so the Tulsa area, North Tulsa to be specific. And so I know that you need a healthy set of distractions every once in a while. And if not, as you mentioned, some of those issues become louder and louder. I want to ask you, what is it that people may not understand about fatherhood? It's a great question. Um, the, the answer is multi-tiered and, and I'll share more observations. I think the first thing is to really point out that, men, that fathers are men first uh, and that for most people, they really don't understand how uh, masculinity and manhood really mediates uh, what mo most men think of as their duties and responsibilities as fathers. And so just on the terms of the um, expression side, in terms of what men do, uh, a lot of guys are participating in their families based upon, you know, role structures, providers, protectors, and stuff like that. But there's this other piece that people don't understand, which is more on the experience side. And that's just what men uh, actually experience as fathers. And from a clinical vantage point, what ends up happening is particularly when there are certain problems, Men will have issues with their anger. Men have problems with their communication. This whole question about fatherhood is, you know, uh, most people understand. For most parents, it's a question about meaning and purpose. And so when a, a man gets to, you know, uh, in his 50s or 60s and, and is starting to deal with questions about legacy, the whole question about his relationships over time becomes really paramount in his life. And so a lot of people always focus on, and I right, rightfully so, the real benefit of having 
children, uh, the benefit of having fathers in children's lives, but they really don't really focus on the benefit that men get from having good relationships with their children and relationships all around. And so fatherhood is both experience and expression, but most people just focus on the expression side and not really pay attention to the experience that men has as fathers and as men. When you speak of expression, many of those emotions are compartmentalized as a man. Uh, and we are discouraged from showing how we feel. If we do, we're too sensitive. There's always a problem. There's always something to complain about. Yeah. And so traditionally, at least in the environment that I grew up in, we were taught to not showcase those emotions. But as you bottle all of that up, at some point, it's got to it's, it's gotta spill over, right? Well, spill over, uh, and, and honestly, it, the, that, that, that metaphor is correct. But the reality is it's the internal life of men that ends up getting damaged more so than the idea that ends up spilling out and hurting other people. But you're 100% right. I mean, guys grow up hearing all the time, fix your face, as men tell me, right? Keep it moving. All those sorts of things that um, just on one level absolutely sort of deny. Man this, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which on one level is just saying don't be emotional. And the idea that there's this separation or demarcation between uh, people's rational life or intellectual cognitive life and emotional life is to really rob people of their humanity. It's to almost think of men uh, in general or people in particular as like a sociopath. Because if you don't have emotions, right, then you're something scary. And so, yes, this idea of not allowing uh, men, and particularly boys, to be having access to their experiences, their internal experiences early and often is a real profound disservice uh, to them uh, to the, and then obviously to the people that love them. Because what we know is most children and certainly most partners want their men, their males in their lives to be emotionally available, to be uh, to have some sense of connection. So they're not just, you know, wives and partners are not just you know, interested in having guys show up, right? They're having, they're interested in them to participate. And so this process, and I'm not saying anything you don't know, is something that only not affects men, but it also affects families as well. And, and Jewel, you say that, and I've heard those comments coming from uh, women in these type of discussions. However, <laughs> when the man shows up and showcases those feelings, it's Okay, I may not agree with what you're saying, and I don't have the proper comeback. Clearly, this is toxic, but you're always so emotional. That is the ultimate trump card to uh, to shut the man's mouth, and then essentially shutting off his emotions, which is bringing us back to square one. Well, I think that there might there's some wisdom in that. I think that um, part of my experience is that the way in which that ends up getting characterized unfortunately, is that, you know, particularly men, when they do get to a, a time when they're sort of expressing themselves, and this is something that's true of all of us, we don't have a lot of tutorials or teachings on how to communicate effectively. And oftentimes what happens in private practice is one is creating an analytical space, not just for people to, 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 to give voice to what they say, but also to hear each other. I can't tell you how many times I've told couples that part of my job is to one, make sure that you hear what the other person is saying, but then the second part is to make sure you believe what the other person is saying. <laughs> then half the time they're like, yeah, I hear him, but I don't believe what he's saying, right? And so this, right? That's just, that, that, that really is just the work. And so communication um, is always this two-way process. And I cannot tell you uh, the profound joy that happens when I work with a couple where they, where they finally hear each other, where they have a system of talking to each other, where they check in to make sure. 
that is this what I understand you to be saying? And so that is in, in one way is a, a much more effective way of being uh, honest about emotions and is not just understood as being angry or being upset or rage and all that stuff. Because there's typically something beneath that that guys are trying to communicate that women and, and children oftentimes are not able to sort of plug into because all they get is that first level, the tone is too loud, they maybe cuss a little bit. And that's a guy not being able to communicate what he's really feeling or thinking. It's just what you know is natural to him. And so that's the, the, the real sort of opportunity is to really have people uh, you know, emotional intelligence is something that is 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 something that's verbalized, uh, not just experienced. And you know, we segue from that men as a whole, mm. to black men, because there yes. are more layers to this. Yes. And um, you know, there's there's a different set of challenges that black men must yeah. uh, grapple with yeah. on a daily basis yeah. that uh, perhaps their white male counterparts don't have to deal with. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I, I love the way in which you framed it. And I think that, you know, again, you, you sort of touched upon it. So just like uh, fathers are men first, black fathers are black men first. And so mm -hmm. uh, the, the process of discharging duties and responsibilities associated with fatherhood ends up not only being mediated by masculinity, but for me black men in particular and men of color in general, it ends up being mediated by race and class and all those other things that end up impacting us. And so, you know, to the to the extent to which, you know, as again, just as men uh, who have been uh, groomed around this whole idea about, you know, uh, providership, responsibility, protectorship, to have those access to those opportunities systematically denied, uh, to have one's place in the family historically be ruptured and fractured, the whole process of being a black father has been something that's been unique to the African-American experience. And so it provides, you know, profound uh, uh, opportunity, but also a lot of pr profound anxiety around that experience for a lot of uh, black men who are trying to, you know, be good fathers, but also to have careers, uh, to have careers in a society that, you know, sees them a little bit less than uh, what they really are. And so, you know, that in of itself becomes a, uh, an opportunity, I don't want to say problem, for Black men to actually get to this other level of humanity and dignity, uh, and which is why this whole issue of respect uh, is particularly of an, an issue uh, within the African-American male community. So, you know, being seen for who we are, not just what we have, is not just something that happens in relationship, it happens for Black men within society as a whole. I, I feel like I'm supposed to put some money in the collection tray right now and shout amen, because I know with the majority of the confrontations I've had, it's been simply because I didn't feel respected. Mm. At the core of the issue, it was because I didn't feel respected and I felt frustrated that I even needed to voice that. Mm. I thought that should have been a prerequisite to the, the conversation or the exchange that I was having because I'm expected to give that and I give it willingly. Yeah. or as long as individuals allow me to do so. Um, how does society fail Black fathers? Um, first and foremost, as uh, by holding them to standards uh, that are unachievable for men in general, and particularly African-American men in particular. Again, as you just noted, the idea that you know one can grow up and be told not to be emotionally available is not only a disservice to them, it's also a disservice to their family. And so writ large, society fails men by not 
um, opening up to them aspects of their humanity from, you know, the cradle to almost the grave. It strips us of our humanity then. Yes. And I say what happens in, you know, clinical practice is that you get men who, uh, you know, um, everyone, I make this sort of distinction uh, between symptoms and disorders. On one level, everybody experiences some symptoms of you know, sadness, depression. Some people, uh, most people experience symptoms of worry and, you know, excessive rumination. Those are different from being clinically depressed or being, you know, having an anxiety disorder. The issue for men is that, you know, one is, is, is if not trained, told to go through their entire life without having half of the coping skills that allow them to be human. Um, and be available again, not just to themselves, but to other people. So it's not a surprise to me clinically when men have higher rates of substance use and abuse, where violence is the only tool in the toolbox that they go to to be able to solve their problems, when they are not able to sort of communicate effectively, not just what they feel, but how, but how their feeling is connected to a, a much more deeper thought process that they perhaps haven't been able to allow to sort of articulate. That this whole idea of intuition and being connected to others is something that's just granted to women and not men. So the whole idea, traditional ideas, I should say, about manhood and masculinity, what's now sort of talked about in terms of toxic masculinity, is really what's robbed of, of men in general, particularly African-American men. It's like having a fight and just literally having one hand behind your back. And so the real opportunity, and this is not just me sort of tooting the horn, in clinical practice, again, the whole opportunity is to simply uh, create an analytical environment without judgment where people have the opportunity to, to align themselves with their own values about who they want to be, that they don't want to be preoccupied with anger or issues with baby mama drama or- Oh my gosh. Children, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So again, the, the, and again, that type of environment shouldn't just happen, you know, when guys are in crisis, right? That shouldn't happen just when guys are at their, you know, about to lose their job, about to lose their marriage. And I'm saying too often society has already written that script for men, that they're just playing out a role um, that, you know, unfortunately, you know, leads to some of these, these things that we're talking about. We, we never get an opportunity to audition for any other role. That's a, that's a wonderful way of putting it. It's an un unfortunate way of putting it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when we talk about uh, black fathers, there's a word that's thrown around and uh, it cuts to the core. And once again, we are assigned a role that may not necessarily fit us mm. as a whole. Um, and that word is absent. Mm. Not always accurate, mm. but it's convenient. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, so there is, uh, so the new data is absolutely showing, comparatively speaking, that uh, African-American males, uh, when they are in, connected with families, are more engaged and involved in certain variables that we don't think that their males are. They're more attentive, they're more, um, uh, they interact with their children more and so, so forth. The story of black father absence really um, has been, you know, on one level, not a story that in many ways we've been responsible for at all, right? The, the conversation about black fathers can never be separated from conversations about the black family. And the black family has historically been, not through volition, has been separated, fragmented, um, and actively sort of discouraged, whether it be not just through uh, writ law, but through policies that, you know, promote, you know, uh, you know, welfare policies in particular that, you know, are more geared towards, you know, uh, women and children not having fathers involved, that whole thing. So I'm just saying the discourse around Black fatherhood has always 
or should not ever be disconnected from the, the conversation and discourse around black, black families. And so what the opportunity is, is to simply say, what are the things happening? Uh, and I'll give you one specific example of this. What are the things that actually deny fathers from participating in families? So for example, there's a very famous uh, research study called Fragile Families, uh, good folks of our in Columbia. And they were invested in this whole question of, okay, when we look at father absence, uh, you know, statistics are one thing, but what are the mechanisms behind it? Because what you would think is that, you know, black fathers just fathering children is just a bunch of booty calls and all that stuff. So what this data set did is they actually captured interviews with young couples actually in the hospital when the baby was being born. Mm. And they interviewed, right? They wanted to see who showed up. Were fathers there? Were fathers absent to your question or not? And then more importantly, once they were there to ask them, what are your sort of aspirations? You know, is this something that you wanted to do? Do you want to be a father? Do you want to be present? Or is this just something casual? And what they found out is absolutely that black fathers, black young males wanted to be active participate, participants in their, their uh, families' lives, right? This as So this aspirational part, um, obviously over time got... Uh, uh, was mediated by the things we talked about, race, class, opportunities, law, unfair practices. But if we're talking about, do black men want to be fathers? Do they want to be present in their lives? The data is unequivocal on that. And so, yes, we can talk about the sociology of black lives and all, you know, and, and all the things that sort of impact black men's ability to discharge them. But just on the core question of, do black families matter to men? Absolutely. So the real question is, how do we actually promote it? How do we actually create policies um, to actually facilitate it as opposed to discourage it? That is the starting point right there. I had a colleague ask, can't we just talk about all fathers? Don't we all want the same things? Joel, tell me why it's important for us to center Black fathers. I know you touched upon plenty of that, but if you could expound on that a little bit more. Sure. I, I would just say that the the... Like anything, when there is a uh, an, uh, an opportunity to focus on the unique uniqueness of the black experience, there's just a sensitivity that black lives matter. And so, whenever we're talking about black fathers, we're not saying that you know all fathers shouldn't matter, but that there's a specific reality, a specific need, um, and a specific interest of making sure again that the black family gets the sort of attention, uh, the sort of opportunity, sort of be understood that uh, it deserves. And so black fathers, again, have a historical uh, trajectory that's very different from other fathers, but we, we don't necessarily have to get caught up in that. There's a famous quote by um, uh, Toni Morrison when she was asked a question uh, about uh, a, a famous writer and said, you know, what was your response to William Styron's Nat Turner? She said, beloved, next question. So on one level, you know, we can we, we hear those sort of questions, we can sort of respond and say, you know what, it really is not about demoting other folks, but the real opportunity is to simply do the work and for us to focus on, again, not just black fathers, but black men as fathers and support them in ways that actually, you know, encourage them, uplift them and pays attention to their lives. But this is not about discounting all fathers, it's simply about saying that Black fathers and black families really do matter. And it's a, it's a conversation that's necessary to have. Conversely, we can exalt mothers in the awesome work they do without having to put down fathers, Absolutely. right? We can Absolutely. lift everybody up at the Absolutely. same time. It's not and a it's competition. It's important to say that. Now, and it's, and I'm, it's, it's, a, you know, it's an important dimension. We didn't talk about it, but just like how um, 
Fatherhood is mediated by manhood and masculinity, especially when it comes to children and duties and responsibilities. It becomes difficult not to talk about black fathers and not to talk about relationship between black men and black women. And then maybe that'll be something we can have a conversation on another time. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm down. Yeah, but that's just another opportunity. Uh, and again, I see a lot of black families, a lot of black couples, uh, you know, who've been married for 30 years. And for the first time, I, you know, wondering, you know, is, you know, what is this about? Right again, the pandemic uh, has created this space where people are looking at each other and like, hmm, right? And so there's an opportunity again for us to have real good conversations again, not rooted in the past uh, about what's happening with black couples and black, mar black marriages that help to ex expound and understand what black fatherhood actually means, not just to children, but also to their wives. I've got to ask this, um, as we talked about many of the issues that fathers are facing, specifically black fathers, though, how can I, as a as a father who happens to be black, tell my kids, my son specifically, yeah. he can do and be who and whatever he wants yeah. when, so when society is actively accosting him? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, for his dreams. Yeah. And I, I watched the same society do its best to strip me of mine. How can I in good faith tell him he can do and become who and whatever he wants? Well, I, I, I think, you know, at this and I, it's, a, it's an important question, right? And I love the question, uh, not just for, for its sort of personal um, aspects, but because uh, in many ways, uh, the, the, the responsibility of adults is to actually create a sort of world for young people. And I think, you know, at this particular point, it's not just, you know, as the sort of cop out as a clinician, but, you know, just like I don't do shoulds, um, I don't do sort of either ors. This is a sort of both and life. And I think that the real opportunity for any black father to talk to their children is to say, you should aspire to all of your dreams, that part of what God's potential for you is, is for you to do everything that's within uh, your power. And so you work hard, you do all the things uh, that make you you. But there is a sort of society that you live in and that you part of being uh, educated and preparing yourself is to recognize that not if, but when things happen, you're going to have to have the type of coping skills, the type of sort of emotional intelligence, uh, the sort of self-dignity and self-awareness to be able to respond. And so on one level, it's not just simply saying you cannot be what you want to be, but it's an acknowledgement, right, that you live in the world. And as Christians, for example, uh, we say, right, we will always do what God uh, has in us. But the reality is being in the world has its own uh, consequences. I might feel led to do something different tomorrow or the day after, Jewel. I mean, I could say the spirit it might not be the right spirit. But... <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. but it's just a simple acknowledgement that, you know, what one's own uh, personal hear, yeah. life also happens within the context of society. So self and society, uh, you know, is this wonderful bridge. And, and your question about parenthood is how do we both protect our children by, you know, being uh, uh, honoring their sort of dreams, but also raising them in, in a world where they don't go for the okie doke, right? Where they don't, uh, because what happens is that we end up possibly setting them up for some idea that, you know, they're to blame when they don't achieve um, their dreams, right? You know, the whole question of what happens to a dream deferred is not just when somebody, uh, you know, works hard and, and believes that they uh, could have, should have, but that they actually don't recognize that there's some things out there stopping them from actually being who they are. And so they blame themselves. Blaming oneself is by far more difficult for people to get over than it is for blaming other people. So 
Uh, that's the piece clinically we have to, you know, because one hears their own voice more than they hear other people's voices. And we really do have to prepare children. Um, and we've known this, right? We've always had to work twice as hard and be twice as good. And there's been, a, there's been some strength in it, right? There's been some strength in saying that despite whatever society does for you, you're going to have dignity in everything that you do. And so uh, on one level, I think that's the, the way in which we both promote kids, but we also protect them at the same time. Perfect. Okay. Well, I guess on that note, we will have to leave it. All right. Thanks to all of you out there listening to this frank conversation. And thanks to Jewel Woods for all the jewels of wisdom. And until next time, you all have a good one.